We turn to the Word of God, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, let's read this entire psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I, can, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice ye righteous, and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. On the basis of this passage, Psalm 32 and others like it in Scripture, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21. Lord's Day 21, last Sunday morning, we focus especially on questions 54 and 55. Today, we focus on question 56 concerning forgiveness. But let's read this entire Lord's Day once again. Lord's Day 21, what believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty, readily and cheerfully, to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins, that God, 
for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved congregation, in our Lord Jesus Christ, did you notice that very bold request that we made of God in the last Psalter number that we sang at the very end of stanza four, where we sang, From my sins, O hide thy face, blot them out in boundless grace. What, what a request that we make of God, the God who hears everything, the God who knows everything, and now we are asking God to turn away his face so that he doesn't see something. And that something would be the multitude of our sins. And we're asking God, look away from my sins and don't hold those sins against me. And then not simply to forget them, but to blot them out in boundless grace. Blot them out so that they're no longer visible. Blot them out so that they can't be recalled and brought back to mind. God, forgive my sins. And that's what we pray for when we sing Psalter number 140. This isn't only a petition that we bring to God. God, forgive my sins but it becomes our confession as we confess it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And right there, there's comfort for the child of God who struggles with his or her sins. And now you and me, as we struggle with our sins, because the forgiveness of sins is not a fairy tale. The forgiveness of sins is not a made-up story. The forgiveness of sins is real. God really and actually forgives sins. I believe there is such a thing as the forgiveness of sin. And not only that, but I believe that this forgiveness of sins, this great blessing of salvation is not only to others, but this is a blessing that God affords to me. And notice how we confess that in the Apostles' Creed. The forgiveness of sins means that God will no more remember my sins, against which I have to struggle all my life long, uh, but God will graciously impute to me righteousness of Christ that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. And if it wasn't stated in the scriptures, and if it wasn't summarized for us in our confessions, 
this is one of those blessings of salvation that is almost, almost unbelievable. My sins? The multitude of them? The horrible nature of those sins that I commit? You mean to tell me that they're forgiven? That they're gone? That God doesn't remember them? That he covers them? That's amazing. It's true. That's amazing. But I say that's amazing because when we look at it from our point of view, well, our human nature is that when others sin against me, our human nature says, well, I'm going to hold that sin against them. I'm going to give them the cold shoulder. I'm going to treat them differently. I'm going to behave myself differently around them and... Surely, we're not going to show ourselves to be their friends until they've made right what they've done wrong against me. But that's not God. God is entirely good. God is entirely gracious. And God says to his sinful people, I love you and I forgive all your sins. And so this is a blessing Blessing of salvation that is near and dear to our hearts. And we keep that close to our hearts and to our minds. So close do we keep this beautiful uh, confession of ours of the forgiveness of sins that we are constantly bringing this petition to God every single day. Take note of that, especially you children. How many times around the supper table do you suppose that dad has prayed, forgive us our sins? How many times does the teacher at school pray for the forgiveness of sins? And you children and young people, you say, well, I hear it all the time. Dad is always praying for the forgiveness of sins. The teachers are always praying for it. And yes, that's a good thing. And we are always to be praying for the forgiveness of sins because that's how Jesus taught us to pray and God would have us approach him that way, always making this request, not only to impress upon us the fact that, that we are sinners, but then also that we must seek that forgiveness outside of ourselves because we don't forgive ourselves, but it comes to us from God and God alone. And this is the blessing that God does grant he actually and really forgives the sins of his people. And this is a promise that he certainly fulfills. He does it. He forgives our sins. And it's for that reason that when we pray for the forgiveness of sins, that we need not preface it with, if it be thy will, if it be thy will, forgive our sins? No. This is something that God has promised. Neither do we pray, if it be thy will, uh, uh, rule over heaven and earth. If it be thy will, love me and preserve me. Those are blessings that God promises, and he certainly fulfills and so also with the forgiveness of sins. Well, we take as our theme...
that blessing of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, noting in the first place the problem of sin, secondly, the blessing of forgiveness, and finally, the joy it affords. Now, in order for us to understand and to appreciate the great blessing of the forgiveness of our sins, we first have to understand what it is that's forgiven. And only when we understand the great magnitude of what's forgiven will we truly appreciate the blessing that God gives. And so we have to start first with the reality of all our sins. And that's the main problem that we have. And that's what David expresses by inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Psalm 32. David doesn't lament the fact that his problem is that he doesn't make enough money as king. Uh, and the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't bemoan the problem that we might think we have when, when things don't go our way. On the contrary, the greatest problem we have is the problem of all our sins. And notice all the different ways that Psalm 32 brings out that ugly reality of sin. In verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. So there are transgressions, and the idea of a transgression is rebelliousness, to rebel, so that God says, here are the boundaries, and you live within those boundaries as my people, and you live within the parameters of my law, but now transgression is when one goes to the boundary line and willfully and deliberately steps over that line and goes into that area where he ought not to be. And that means that we would rebel. Transgression is a brazen rebellion against God. And this tells us a little bit about the nature of sin. It tells us that sin isn't an oversight. It's not an innocent mistake that we make. But at times, our sins are transgressions. And they manifest themselves in open, defiant rebellion against God and against his law. And then verse 1 continues there at the end, whose sin is covered. And this is a very broad and general word. It refers to any violation of God's law. It emphasizes that when we sin, we miss the mark of the glory of God and thus sin against God himself. Verse 2 goes on and lists more. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Iniquity. So there you have another word for sin. Iniquity refers to that which is uh, depraved and corrupt. It's a word that means twisted. And if you can imagine... God sets before us the straight and the right way. But man in his iniquity doesn't want to stay on that straight way, but instead twists and, and, and turns. And there you have the idea of transgressions, always going.
going outside of the path that God sets before him. That's a life of iniquity. Iniquity also means when one takes the very clear word of God and now twists it and distorts it so that it would say something entirely different and in that way to use God's word as a justification for our sins. Iniquity is sin. Verse 2 goes on. It uses another word. And in whose spirit there is no guile. Guile refers to deceit and treachery. And isn't that the nature of sin? That there are certain sins we commit whereby we would deceive others into thinking that we are pretty good people. Whether it's the student who cheats on his homework or on the test, or whether it's a business owner who creates a problem for the customer and then offers to fix that problem for a fee. All of which is to put ourselves up in the eyes of men so that they think that we are pretty good people. But that's deceit, that's treachery, that's guile. And guile is not only deceiving others, but it's deceiving myself. When we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are pretty good people, that we are doing what is right, when really we are only doing what we want to do, and in reality going against the law of God. And we are very good at convincing ourselves that I really don't think that I did anything wrong. I don't feel that I did anything wrong. Nobody else was around. It didn't hurt anybody else. Nobody else even knows about it. And that's something we all have to watch out for, that we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're doing right when in reality we are going against the law of God. And in the rest of Psalm 32, David repeats some of these words, but all of these words reveal to us the different stages of sin, the different phases of sin. It reveals to us just how awful and ugly and depraved sin is. And this sin was a problem for David, and it's a problem for us as well. The Catechism makes this very personal, and it captures that when it says, my sins. And the Catechism goes on to say that my sin is not merely a matter of what I do, my actual sins, but it's a problem of, of who I am and what I am. The Catechism refers to my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. And we got that corrupt human nature when our first father Adam fell into sin and therefore all the human race fell into sin with him and now all humans have become depraved and spiritually dead and there is nothing a man can do that can please God. It's all bad. It's all evil. And what man needs is God 
to come and to forgive his sins and to change his heart so that he can be a regenerated child of God and perform good works. But by himself, all a man can do is sin. And we all have that corrupt, depraved human nature. And the catechism uses that word struggle. It's a struggle to live with that corrupt nature. Catechism says, I have to struggle with it all my life long. Now, this is something that we know. This is something that we experience. This becomes a great difficulty for the child of God when we say that I have this sin, this besetting sin especially, that comes against me day and night, and I'm sorry for this sin, and I repent of this sin, and God comes and he assures me that he washes that sin away. But it seems as if the very next day, I'm right back into it, and I'm continuing to struggle with it, and not just for one day, but all my life long, I'm struggling tooth and nail against my corrupt human nature and against these besetting sins. Well, people of God, thanks be to God that you and I do struggle all our life long with these sins because that's an evidence that we have the new man within us because if we would have not have that new man, then we would not be struggling against those sins and we would be giving into those sins and living very happily and contentedly in those sins, thanks be to God for giving us grace and giving us a Holy Spirit so that we do fight, but that corrupt nature remains with me all my life long, and that means that our lives will be a continual, lifelong struggle. But now we ask the question, why is sin such a problem for us? What is the problem that it creates? Is it that now when I sin, uh, people don't trust me and now my life is hard? Is it because that when I sin, now I have to deal with the consequences of my sin and perhaps those consequences, and we know that those consequences are not fun to deal with? Well, in itself, those things are true, but that's not why sin is such a problem. Sin is such a problem because of what, because there is such a thing called the tribunal of God. And the catechism points us to that at the end of answer 56 when it says that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. The tribunal of God refers to the judgment seat of God. And the reality is that we all have to stand before the tribunal of God. And that's when God will expose all our actions that we've ever done and all the thoughts that have ever entered into our minds. And if we stand before that tribunal of God, even with one sin charged, to our account, then we will be condemned. And that's right of God. He may do that. That's just of God because the word of God says that the wages of sin is death. 
God must punish and condemn sin. And he will do that ultimately and finally before the tribunal of God. But now the question is also, when is it? When is it that you and I will stand before the tribunal of God? Well, that's going to happen at the very end of time. Absolutely. When Christ comes again on the clouds of glory to conduct the final judgment, and that's when all the bodies will be raised and we all will give an account to the judge of heaven and of earth of every idle word even that we have ever spoken and our lives will become as an open book. And we will be judged by Jesus Christ, the judge. But there is a sense, too, that we stand before the tribunal of God every day in our own consciences because God speaks to us in his word. God tells us in his word what is right and what is wrong, and even those in the world who've never read the Bible, who have never heard a sermon, the law of God is written in their hearts, and they know that it's wrong to steal and it's wrong to commit adultery, and that they know the power of the Godhead and that they must worship the creator instead of the creature. But every moment, therefore, we stand before the tribunal of God in our consciences. And if we stand before that tribunal and we sin, then our consciences accuse us that we have not kept the law of God. And that's something that David experienced long ago in the Old Testament. That's something that David went through. As he stood before the tribunal of God, his conscience accused him that he was a sinner. That's what we have here in Psalm 32. Well, when David sinned with Bathsheba and he tried to cover up that sin and he covered up that sin by sinning only more by killing her husband and then David's conscience accused him as he stood before the tribunal of God and that's what we have in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silence... My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. So that when David kept silent, when he would not acknowledge his sin, he would not uh, bring that, it, repent of that sin, and he kept silent, then there was this raging storm within his heart. And that was a burden for David so that he says, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He felt himself to be weak. He felt himself to be weary like the bones of an old man who's about to die. Well, that's how David felt. Not only from a physical point of view, yes, but especially from a spiritual point of view. And then what he says in verse 4 for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned into the drought of summer so that the hand of God was heavy upon David. And David says, I have no moisture left in me. W what does that mean? It means, well, you know, that plants 
Plants need moisture to live. And if there's no moisture, there's no water, there's no life. And David felt as if there was no life left in me. He felt like that weak, weary, withered, dried up plant. And every movement became a burden and a chore. Has that ever been your experience? You stand before the tribunal of God day by day in your conscience and your conscience accuses you of sin. We feel God's hand upon us. Maybe we fool ourselves into thinking for a time that perhaps God will ignore my sin. Perhaps he'll simply brush it under the rug. But we know that he won't. We know that he will uncover it. We know that he will expose it and then our moisture turns into the drought of summer and our bones wax old. We feel old and tired and lethargic. Well, all this is sin. Sin is a problem. Sin is the worst problem there ever was because we must stand before the tribunal of God. But thanks be to God that there is such a thing as the blessing of forgiveness. The blessing of forgiveness means that God wipes those sins away. Especially now as we stand before the tribunal of God that God says, I don't charge those sins to your account. I don't deal with you according to your sins. Those sins are gone. Those sins are forgiven. And David in Psalm 32 uses this language of forgiveness. Right there in verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven, and that's a beautiful word. Here in the original Hebrew language, it's a word that means to lift up, to forgive. But then not to lift up, simply to put it right back down. But it's a word that means to lift up and then to do away with it completely and entirely. And that's what God does to our sins. Those sins are not on our record because God forgives them and therefore we're not guilty for them. When God forgives, he lifts them off our record and he takes them all away. And then verse 1 continues, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That helps us to understand more about what forgiveness is all about. When God forgives sins, he, he covers them. And when you cover something, you conceal it. And when God covers our sins, then he, he, he puts his hand, as it were, over our sins, as it were. Really, you might say, maybe not his hand, but we could say, he covers those sins in the blood of Jesus Christ so that those sins are no more visible, no more evident. And that when you and I stand before the tribunal of God, then our sins are covered and all God sees is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the great blessing of forgiveness. Lifting those sins up and removing them 
lifting those sins up and covering them, and it all speaks to this one and same reality that when you and I stand before the tribunal of God, that the guilt of our sins is removed. And all that remains for us is for us to be declared innocent and righteous. And that's the very same truth the Heidelberg Catechism teaches here in Lord's Day 21. But now the Heidelberg Catechism uses other biblical imagery to teach us how blessed and how wonderful the forgiveness of sins is all about. And the catechism, what do you under, believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? The answer is that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. That's the blessing of forgiveness. God will no more remember my sins. Now, how can the Heidelberg Catechism say that, that God will no more remember my sins? Somebody might say, I thought that God was omniscient, that he's all-knowing, that he knows everything and he remembers all things, and yet the Catechism says forgiveness means that God won't remember? Well, let me point you to two passages to show that this is this is good and right language, biblical language that the Heidelberg Catechism is using. First, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, we have this. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. And there's two things here that God blots out our sins so that he doesn't see them, something so that even during the nighttime on a clear night, if a cloud comes by and it covers the moon and it blots out your side of the moon so you can't see that anymore, well, so also God blots out our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then also it says that God will not remember our sins. He forgets those sins. They're not on the forefront of his mind because those sins are gone. But then another passage in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 verse 34 And there we read, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And there are other passages of Scripture besides that speak of God taking our sins and casting them away, casting them into the depths of the sea, and that means that our sins are gone and that nobody can bring them back and can think of them or remember them. That's what God says about our sins. I do forget them. I don't remember those sins. I cast them away. Now, 
when God says that he doesn't remember our sins anymore, and we understand that correctly. That's not God saying I'm not really omniscient after all because there are some things that I forget. Of course not. God doesn't forget from that point of view. God doesn't develop a selective amnesia where he can conveniently erase some things from his mind, as it were, so that he forgets them in that, in that sense, just forgetting our sins. No, that, that's not what happens. But God uses this language, I will remember your sins no more, in the sense of I will so thoroughly lift your sins, so thoroughly not count them unto you, so that they are gone. They are forgiven. And it's like I forgot them. So that if anybody were to go to God and ask him, well, don't you remember those sins that those people committed? Then God would say, I don't hold those sins against my people. Those sins are forgiven. And I remember those sins no more. And the guilt of those sins and the shame of those sins can't be brought up anymore. Sins are covered. Sins are forgiven. What a great blessing, the forgiveness of all those horrible, vile sins is. But how can this possibly be that God would take my sins and cover them and remember them no more? Doesn't the Bible say that the wages of sin is death? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. How is it possible that God would forgive our sins? The catechism turns us to our only hope, to our only comfort, answers that in the question when it speaks of the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. For the sake of Jesus Christ, Jesus was a perfectly righteous man, never committing one sin. And you think of all of those words that we looked at a few moments ago at the, in the first point, all of those words for sin, transgression, sin, iniquity, and guile, were those, did those words apply to Jesus? Transgression, no. Sin, no. No. Iniquity, no. Guile, no. Nothing, because all his life was perfect, perfectly obedient to God. And this Jesus Christ is our representative. And that means that the punishment that we deserve for our sins, Jesus represents us. And he takes that punishment upon himself. So that Jesus was also a man who stood before the tribunal of God. Jesus stood before the tribunal of God when he suffered on the cross of Calvary. And all our sins he took upon himself. And he made them his own so that he was responsible for them. And then we may say, from that point of view, from the point of view of Jesus becoming our substitute, 
from the point of view of Jesus becoming our representative? Was then Jesus guilty of transgression? He was. Was he guilty of sin? He was. Was he guilty of iniquity and guile? He was. Not because he personally committed them, but because our sins were imputed to him. And he stood guilty before God. And God poured out all his wrath upon Jesus Christ. And after those three hours, the wrath of God was exhausted. After those three hours, God said, I have no more wrath. Jesus, you've satisfied. You've satisfied my wrath. There is no more left. That's the forgiveness of our sins, the covering of them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So that when you and I stand before the tribunal of God, God says, I don't see any sin. All I see is the blood of Jesus Christ. Sins have been lifted and gone, and I don't remember it anymore. And so thoroughly has God dealt with our sins in Jesus Christ that it's impossible for those sins ever to be brought up again. That's the forgiveness of sins, of all our sins, only because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do you and I have to do to receive this forgiveness? Great blessing of salvation? The answer is nothing. Nothing at all. It's a blessing that God freely grants and bestows of his grace. How could we possibly earn it or merit it? How can we sinners possibly do anything to make God obliged to give unto us this blessing of salvation? We can't do anything. We can't make ourselves worthy of this blessing of forgiveness, but this is the work of God alone. And Psalm 32 makes that clear even in the language that is used. In verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And then in other verses as well, but in whose transgression is forgiven. That's a passive verb. We don't forgive our transgressions. It's something that's done to us by someone else. It's done by God. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. All of this is done by God. Now God does give us a calling. God does say, repent of your sins, flee from your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for all your salvation and for all those who sincerely turn to the Lord in repentance and sorrow of sin, God declares unto them, all your sins have been forgiven, and I remember them no more. And knowing this forgiveness and experiencing this forgiveness in our life, this is a doctrine, this is a blessing that affords us great joy and happiness in life. And that's what we read in Psalm 32. Blessed. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man 
unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now what a what a beautiful word that is. Blessed. Blessed is he. That word, it's a word that means happiness. It's a word that refers to joy. But you think back to when you were a child, you've done something wrong. Mom and dad aren't home right now, but they've become aware of your sin, of your iniquity, and it's only a matter of time before they come home. And in the meantime, you know that when dad comes home, you're going to get it. And your soul is anxious, and you are restless, and you're wondering, when is this going to happen? And life becomes a burden, and life becomes a chore. But then mom and dad come home, and dad deals with your sin accordingly. But now afterwards, it's all been dealt with. What a relief. What a joy. What a burden has been lifted from your soul, and that fear is banished. And we are happy, joyful children once again. Well, that's the blessedness. That's the joy and happiness uh, that David speaks of. Even that David felt in his heart when this word of forgiveness came unto him, because those were a few miserable months after David committed his sin with Bathsheba, and when he tried to hide his sin and cover his sin with more sin, and he was restless, and he was anxious, and his soul was in turmoil, and his, he felt weak and weary, but then God spoke to him through the prophet Nathan, and God brought David to that point where he confessed his transgressions unto the Lord. Well, and as we read here in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And David was a, was a blessed man. He was happy and joyful. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. And so also for us, we are a blessed and happy and joyful people. And we have that blessedness and happiness now in our lives, even now as we stand before the tribunal of God in our own consciences that God doesn't condemn me for my sins because I'm a child in Jesus Christ whose sins are covered. And that will be true of us at the end of time when in our bodies we will stand before the tribunal of God and God will declare not guilty, innocent. Sins have been covered. Enter thou into the joy of thy rest. Even as the catechism says that we will never be condemned before the tribunal of God because of the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a joy. And that's why Psalm 32 ends the way that it does in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Because our God 
is a God who sovereignly and powerfully and effectually forgives all my sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for the great gift of the forgiveness of our sins through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith in this truth by the gospel. Strengthen our faith that we look away from ourselves and trust alone in thee. Forgive all that we have done against thee. Blot out all our transgressions and remember them no more. And do this for Jesus' sake alone.